welcome to the first research show of 2022. Um, it's been a little while since we've done one. We've we've changed the format up a little bit. So if you if you have been a regular viewer in the past, you might have wondered where we'd gone. Um, we basically decided to change the format. So rather than every fortnight having a show, um, like a live show, we've decided to just keep it much more flexible, which has meant that we've been able to get some fantastic guests that we might not have been able to get if we were in a really regimented, structured fortnightly show. And we've got one of those fantastic guests with us today. So I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm really excited to say that we have the most fantastic Todd Kashan on the show today, who is one of the world top experts on the psychology of well-being, psychological strengths, mental agility and social relationships. His research has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, including multiple articles in the Harvard Business Review, New York Times and Forbes. And we're massive fans here. So if you're not familiar with Todd, then he's the author of five books. And in his latest book, The Art of Insubordination, Todd synthesizes decades of psychological research to show how we can improve the health of organizations and our society. He teaches us how to be courageous enough to ask the question and question the status quo and instills in us the intelligence to know when and how. I've also got on my little notes about Todd, which I think, you know, we can't we can't miss that Todd works out relentlessly for the freedom to consume copious amounts of steak, whiskey and Italian rainbow square cookies. And, and the fact that that's in your notes, Todd, fascinating. <laughs> you have to tell us more about the steak and the whiskey, too. And the final thing, much like myself, he has twins. So um, I'm also, I'm a mother of twins. I've got twin girls. So again, we'll have to catch up afterwards on, on, on your twins. And you also have an, another child as well. So uh, very exciting stuff. But we're not here to talk about the families, the steak or the whiskey. We want to know more about your new book. Um, as always, we have um, Emma here on the call. Um, Emma's got lots of questions to, to ask you today. So um, Emma, I will hand over to you. Oh, thanks, Katie. And absolutely delighted to, to welcome you to the Reset Show, Todd. Um, I am a huge fan of your work. Um, so that was that was quite an intro, wasn't it? But is there anything that Katie didn't cover there that you think we should know about you? I mean, so thank you. I mean, um, I'm smiling ear to ear. I just want to um, double down on Katie raising twins. Um, I want to pose the question that scientists never ask about this. And I think it's important because you mentioned kind of I have this extra that's not the twin. Everybody studies twins, monozygotic and dizygotic twins. And nobody asked the question, what's it like to be the sibling of a twin? And I think it's it's just this missing ingredient because I watch my, my third daughter of, oh, hey, there's the twins and Violet. And so there's, there's an interesting thing of like, what, what's it like actually to learn from them and do differentiate from them? And then how is your identity uh, muffled by the fact that you're the extra, the other? Yeah, it, I no, I totally agree. It's really interesting, actually. And um, as I'm sure, like you, when you have twins, you you naturally meet loads of other twin parents. And I've got quite a few friends who have twins, plus another child. And uh, we've had similar conversations, how they might be walking along. And especially when you're pushing the, the double buggy at the very start and everyone's peering in and, and the other one's, oh, there's another child there. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> it exactly. is really interesting. Yeah. 
Maybe they have a middle child syndrome on steroids, right? Well, that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. So, Todd. Yeah, it's relevant. You no, know, it, it, absolutely, absolutely. But we, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. It really is. I, I've got loads of twins in my family, but I'm, I'm not a twin. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Um, so we're here to talk about your new book, The Art of Insubordination, which I've read. And um, I, I was just saying earlier, I, I'm literally recommending it to everybody I speak to. Um, it's seriously one of the best books I've read in years. I absolutely love it. Anyway, um, what motivated you to write this book, Todd? So this is six years in the making. I'm a really big fan of scientists or journalists or authors doing the deep dive of understanding sociology. And this is pre-Trump. This is, uh, this is pre-COVID. And um, you know, this is pre the, the really the extreme neo-Nazi resurgence that's occurred in society. Um, around the time of the Arab Springs is when this happened. And there were a bunch of sociological trends that were interesting, beautiful, and disturbing as hell. And a few of them were things like this, where we have the most precipitous drop in religious involvement or engagement in the history of the country, much less the world. Not much has been said about that, of what are people replacing that with? What did it, what did it offer? And what are people doing differently? You have a situation where the average person is holding, I don't know what the number is right now. The last time I looked, it was 12 jobs over the course of their adult lifetime. So what does that mean about not having a long-standing relationship and these work relationships and this source of meaning and it keeps on changing and flipping and you're, you're, what we know from research that I've done with Michael Steger, him being the lead, is searching for meaning often detracts from well-being if you don't have very reliable sources of meaning. And then you've got things like GameStop popped in where you had a bunch of rogue 20 and 30 year olds figuring out that there was a little chasm in the capitalist uh, investment system where they were able to work on it. And then the governments or small companies stopped them from making money, even though they found the flaw that the regular guys and gals out there. And, and then you have an increase in polarization, extremism, intolerance about politics. So all of these social trends made me think about how do you disagree with social norms, orders, rules, and authorities because they're going in the wrong direction? How do you do it well? And how do you discriminate them from the people that are dissenting, but they're really destroying the fabric of society? Mm. Yeah, absolutely fascinating stuff. So could you just give us a kind of the, the blink list style summary of, you know, in, in a, a few minutes about what, what the book's all about? Yeah, so this book really isn't about insubordination. And it really isn't about rebels. This is really about how do you create a society that's closer to utopian ideals? There was a book that I read in college, and it's one of the few books I ever read in my free time in my early teenage years, which is The Island by Aldous Huxley. And I, I don't know if, if Katie or if Emma, if you guys have read this book, but there's, there's one passage that's really intriguing. It's this island where people escape you know, the difficulties and the strains of the daily nine to five hustle. And they train all the birds on the island to say, attention. So you got all these peacocks and condors and vultures. It's a fictional book. So, and they're all just saying, attention, attention, attention. And it's they built into the culture the idea of 
the only place that you're truly alive is in the present moment and don't Mm -hmm. turn to the past to be worrying about all the regrets that you have and the future of all the things that could possibly go wrong. And it always stuck with me, even decades later, which is what have we actually produced in society to get us closer to this aspirational vision of what's possible? I mean, this is the beauty of Martin Seligman's idea of positive psychology built on the shoulders of Abraham Abraham Maslow, which Mm -hmm. is in order for us to think about what we can become, we have to think about what are the mechanisms that allow us to even even develop those ideas, stress test those ideas, contemplate those ideas, and then put them into practice. And the way that I've actually conceived of it by reading this literature and, and going through history is the centers to some degree are the only safeguard we have for creating a society that will deviate in a healthy way from the dysfunctions of the past and today. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. I really love that. And um, you know, why why do people why should people read this? Give us, I mean, I, I think it's amazing, but but you know, give us a kind of the, the short term in terms of you know what what are people going to get out of reading this book? Well, I don't think anybody's walking around right now and saying we have a surplus of courage in society. Mm. Everybody's speaking what they think about sex, about gender and race, and everybody's being really comfortable pointing out um, that we need more diversity and, importantly, where we think people are going in the wrong direction or the right direction in pursuing this really valued aim. And people are, there's really, you know, there's no one saying there's a surplus of courage in, in, in work meetings, in households, in neighborhoods where people are speaking to the person that lets their dog do their thing on their driveway, mm-hmm. having that assertive conversation or telling your romantic partner for 20 years that, you know what, there's a few things that aren't working. I feel as if I'm doing most of the housework, even though we both have full paying jobs, right? This is kind of the big gender inequity in society and it doesn't have to do with the workplace it has to do with you know the third shift that happens at home or the second shift that happens at home um that's a tough conversation because you're not looking for resolution right there you're looking for the courage to stick with this uncomfortable situation and work through the small shaping to create a dynamic that works for everyone's well-being and the health of the health and longevity of the relationship so this is a book about increasing people the scientific skills and strategies to being having more fortitude, more courage, more curiosity, more intellectual humility, and be psychologically flexible to modify your behavior to whatever the situation demands to get the best possible outcome. And most of the times, it's, it's an uncomfortable, it's a difficult situation. And when you do something that is not predictable to other people, you're going to get friction most often, and you're going to get static. And you might be socially persecuted and not get anything you want in the short term. So this is a book about creating the expectations that it is hard to disagree and not follow the herd. But to do anything else is to do less with your human potential. And to some degree, this is a social self-help book to, to not give the offerings that could make society better. I sound like I'm running for, for Miss Universe right now. No, not at all, not at all. It really resonates with me. Um, we'll come on to that in a sec, but I just wanted to say, I mean, one of the things I really love about this book is it's really practical. It's really pragmatic, and I'm a huge fan of that because you've got 
know, the first part of the book, you've got all the science, which is amazing. As a psychologist, I love that. I want, I want to know there's method in the madness, as I always say. But then you, you take this kind of these big ideas, like, yeah, who's not, you know, everyone's going to say more courage is a good thing. But you kind of take these big abstract ideas and you break them down and, and give people really practical tools and tips that, that you think, I, 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 could, I could have a go at that. What do you think are some of the most effective kind of strategies that you include in the book um, that help people to, to live with more courage in their lives? Well, I'll tell you some of my favorite, and a lot of them come from Ethan Cross and, um, you know, researchers other than my lab. Um, Francesca Gino at Harvard does a lot of this work, which is here are the, here are the two questions that the chatter in your head that prevents you from going against conformity and for going against conventional thinking. So one of the questions is, if I have this thought that nine to five is a problem, if I have this thought that the best place to start dealing with gender inequity is in the household, mm. why aren't people doing something about it? Why isn't this being talked about more often? I know there are articles here and there in Harvard Business Review and Forbes magazine. I know it comes up in a fire pit conversation here and there, but if I'm right about this, wouldn't something have been done about it since the 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s? So that stops people in their tracks. Mm -hmm. And the other question that people ask themselves is, do I have the temperament to handle negative evaluation, judgment, rejection, ostracism that comes from raising my hand and saying in a meeting, you know what, can I just have us pause for a second? Um, there's something here that's not gelling with me and not making sense. And I'm thinking of a different approach. Mm. And you know, when you do that, well, we know, we, you know, you know, personally, and we know scientifically that when you do that, all eyes turn to you mm. and the facial expression you get is not this. Bring it. Yeah. The, yeah. I want to hear it. I want to, I want to make this meeting longer. I want to have more friction in the meeting. Um, I want you to make my workload greater. This is fantastic. Emma, Katie, yes, talk more. Like, we, we didn't have an agenda at all. I'm so glad that you're going to ask us to rethink everything we've been working on for the past three months. This is wonderful. I'm so glad you're part of this team. You're not going to hear that. There are very few cultures that actually are, are welcoming of this. And so most people say, I don't have it. And, you know, this person does. Well, part of the, the skills in this book is that you do have it. And we have psychological skills. One of the really great ones is, that was a big, long tee up to self-distancing. <laughs> self now, there's a few strategies when you're in that room that's going to help you do, to be more likely to make an approach move and speak your piece as opposed to be part of the silent majority. So, Here's three different ways of doing self-distancing. One of them is to ask the question, what advice would you give your best friend, mm. your child, your parents in the same exact situation? And the odds are that you are incredibly quick at giving advice that, you know what? No, no, no. Don't keep that to yourself. You're going to have irritable bowel syndrome. No, you're going to have anxiety problems. You're going to hate yourself in the morning. Like, listen, I'm going to be there for you and your close friends are going to be there for you. We don't give ourselves the same compassion. That's self-distancing. So have a little person on your shoulder. Make it a bald, you know, mole-infested face like mine that sits there on your shoulder that says, ask the question, 
what advice would you give your best friend as you're about to close your mouth and keep your hand down and not say what you want to say? The second way of doing self-distancing is to ask about your future self. So, you know, Emma, 20 years from now, which one are you going to like the best when you look back on this moment? The Emma that actually raises their hand and says that they're actually everyone seems to be going in the wrong direction or the Emma that actually folds back into their chair and kind of you know squirrels away from the group and then it's going to gossip afterwards about, you know what, I think everything they did is not going to work. And when they turn to you and say, why didn't you say anything? I don't know. Nobody else said anything. Which, which Emma are you going to be most excited about five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? That's a self-distancing perspective about the, the present moment. And then a third approach for this is to start using language that involves, dissolves the ego, yeah. where you're starting to use less I, less me. This is not about, this is not about my thoughts. It's about we, it's about us. We can do something that's going to be more constructive. And here are some thoughts. Um, and, you, and you start referencing what other people have said previously. And then you build, put them together like Lego blocks. So look for opportunities in these dissenting moments where you can actually intentionally lay the idea and claim the agent of that idea. So it seems as it is, you have this huge coalition when it might be just you, the one that actually is the one who's at, on the platform doing the talking. Yeah, no, I love that. It's really, really, really great. And the, 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 yeah, the, um, some of the tips really, really resonate with me and they, they felt very, uh, very doable and, and not too big and scary actually. So, uh, definitely some great practical stuff in there. And something that I really love, Todd, is your, uh, your, I think you call rebel archetypes. Is that right? Yeah. Um, who doesn't love a quick quiz, right? We all, I mean, look at BuzzFeed, just, you know, there's a whole business built of quick quizzes, right? Um, and I, I, I did my quiz and I was, a, it was an innovator. Was that one of them? Innov uh, yeah, yeah, no. That was my rebel archetype. So just talk us through the, the, the archetypes and I'd love to know which one you, you come out as as well. Yeah, no, I mean, Emma, I mean, just, you know, you might, at the end of the quiz, if you roll down, you get to see, you know, which iconic figures that you, yeah. you resemble, right? So, Marie Curie, um, Maria Montessori, Steve Jobs, Nikola Tesla, not Elon Musk creating Tesla cars, but actually Tesla, Tesla, mm. you know, the Einsteins and, you know, you know, the Isaac Asimovs. I mean, these, you know, these are the, these are the innovators that happen there. It's a great group. Um, the, there's, so this is, this is by reading, you know, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a real avid reader. Uh, you know, history, sociology, anthropology, and kind of found four archetypes. So one is the innovator, um, and that's what you described. And maybe the best way of thinking about this quickly is thinking of in a metaphor. So imagine that you have all four archetypes that are um, deciding that they're going to go on a cross-country trip. And so the innovator is the one that says, I'm going to create a car that's going to make sure that we spend as little money as possible and when we get to Death Valley in the United States, where there's no gas stations, we're going to be able to survive on solar energy and get through this thing. So that's the innovator. You've got the defender who's on the car. That's basically all these bandits and all, you know, all these zombie characters that are kind of, kind of running towards the car and want to steal all of your amazing technology that the Emmas of the world, the innovators created. Um, they're going to fend them off. They're going to be using their mixed martial arts to fight them away. They're going to put themselves as a, as a physical shield to protect anyone else from being harmed. 
That's the defender. That's another principled rebel archetype. There's also the niche carver. So the niche carver sitting in the back of the car and saying, hey, you know what? Can you guys drop me off here? Um, I'm going to create a tree house and I'm going to think that we have to like, this tree is absolutely beautiful and there's no reason that we can't live our lives. Why are we going to San- from New York to San Francisco? Why are we don't create our own society here? And they kind of realize that, listen, in those trees, we can create some beautiful, amazing bridges that kind of connect the trees and create some ropes. We can create a system where we harvest harvest food from, you know, from the earth, actually literally from the earth and dig in there and look into the roots and kind of create our own, you know, our own agricultural system. We don't have to be dependent on the economy. The niche carver is realizes you can live a life that is left of center from the mainstream that really focuses on your personality and your well-being. And here's the key part, does not detract from the well-being of others. And who are we as anyone to bother these niche carvers. And then finally, so that was the innovator, the defender, the niche carver, you have the culture shifter. And the culture shifter is the one that's in that car, which is saying, you know what? We should actually really thinking about what people's strengths are as opposed to who looks like they're the physically strongest to be at the helm of the helm of this car. And the person that's saying the most intelligent things and assume that they have all the answers. Let me actually, actually, as opposed to the superficial characteristics of everyone in this car, I actually want to ask some questions and extract the profiles, the strengths, the weaknesses, the potentials of everyone in this group mm-hmm. before I make assumptions about that. They've changed the culture of how people tend to operate in groups. What we normally do is we use proxies to assume what people's qualities are. Mm-hmm. So. If you're loud and assertive in a, in a meeting, there's the assumption of, oh, that's a person that we should let talk and lead. And yet we know scientifically there is zero correlation between how loud you are in a meeting and how good you are in a meeting. And for many years over the course of human history, the assumption was if you look like me and you're a male, the idea is like, oh, that is the archetype of a leader. Mm-hmm. There's actually, there's this great, great studies you could read in the 70s where actually it says the qualities of a leader one of them is someone over six feet tall which tends to be male because men tend to be taller than women one of them is that you actually are a baptist which is just one of hundreds of religions that exist that are out there and one of those characteristics is being a man that goes in there which there's you know the only correlation is what opportunities were available for you to be a leader as opposed to what you know, what your genetically genetically inherited sex is. So the culture shifter starts to poke and probe at the norms and the guidelines to play there. And that gives you an idea of kind of how these four archetypes work together to create a better society. No, I love it. I love it. Again, it's just really, really practical. And you have a bit of an aha moment when you when you read through them. So which archetype are you then, Todd? I'm definitely a culture shifter. I mean, each one of us has a little bit of both. Yeah. And there's a there's a lot of defender in me as well. Right. But I'm really I really like to look at the veneer of society. You know, I remember when I went to a uh, there was a, a international pod psychology association conference, and they they gave the first fellow awards when I was at this conference. And so all of a sudden, um, the announcer says, "This is our first first set of fellows get ready to meet them here welcome on stage martin sullivan welcome on stage chris peterson welcome on stage ed diener 
Mike Chexet Mahai. I'm sitting in the audience next to Barbara Fredrickson and Sonia Lierbermerski. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, huh. Now, this is years before people yeah. started really talking about this in science, about yeah. you know gender disparities. And I said, does anyone think there's like a problem here, which is they form this organization, they're getting the awards. Where's Carol Riff? Um, where's the mention of Alice Eisen? Um, you know, where, you know, where's, where's the mention, the mention of, um, Hazel Marcus, who's the best cultural psychology researcher possibly arguably in the world. And I'm sitting next to Barbara Fredrickson, the positive motion researcher. Amazing, so, yeah. so when I gave a talk, this is, this is an example of my culture shifterness. Mm -hmm. When I gave a talk, I, I, I took my notes, I threw it aside and I said, I want to talk about what happened this morning. And I mentioned, I said, listen. We have a problem here. We have a cultural problem in the organization. I was banned from giving a talk. I have not given a talk yet at that organization since then yeah. um, because I spoke out of turn. Now, that same organization, over, just like everyone else, is just saying all the things about they care about diversity and you know this. And, but this, this is the story of the dissenter. The dissenter gets a lot of friction and hatred because... Wait, you were you were brought here to give this talk, and yet all the things that I suggested in that talk they do now, but nobody remembers that I brought them up in the first place. You often don't get credit, and I'm not looking for credit. Yeah, it's, uh, what I want to do is speak about what the trajectory is of a dissenter, which is you often don't get what you want, but you get in people's heads, mm -hmm. and there's often a sleeper effect, a delayed reaction, and you often don't get credit credit. But societies and cultures improve by you speaking your piece. Yeah, yeah. That that again. That was I found found that really interesting. And you've got some great anecdotes and stories to kind of make that point around. You know, people we we you know look up to and, and you know admire for whatever it is, whatever kind of you know strides they've made in society and research. And you actually share some brilliant stories. So actually, they they weren't necessarily the first. You know, and it was like I keep saying, to family, hey, did you know? Did you know? <laughs> all right, all right. And and on that, I mean, it's really interesting. I think because I mean, the, the business that we run, People Lab. I mean, that it, it was really started from a kind of place of, of insubordination, which is I worked ten years in house and was just sick of the way companies treated people. It's like you know what, if we get it right with our people, everything else falls into place. So why are we still making these huge mistakes? And for a long time, it worked to be miserable. And I had a real passion for improving people's experience at work. And I couldn't understand why companies just weren't getting on the bus. Because it's like, but great things happen when you get it right with your people. Every business outcome is positively impacted. So why wouldn't you do this stuff? So that's kind of kind of where we came from and why I started the business all those years ago. Um Something that I really love in the book you talk about is, is how insubordination can you talk about neutralize some cognitive bias, which really spoke to me. Um, you know, something we, we deal with every day and we understand them, we know I've got them, but I think particularly our colleagues that are working in the kind of equality, diversity, inclusion um, field, we have a, a lot of uh, people, listeners that are in that place. Um, can you explain a little bit more about that? Because I think that's a really fascinating and practical application for the work you're talking about to have some positive impact on what we're trying to do in, in businesses. Yeah, before we do that, because I, I need to have the, a little bit of the denouement from, from you and Katie. So with all of that of, uh, of training businesses to kind of work better with their people, um, mm -hmm. what, what strategies or levers have you found people resonate, found that people resonated the most with that you were offering or experimenting with 
Yeah, so so this is why I got interested in positive psychology in the first place. So you interview me now, I love this. Um, <laughs> I was in-house looking after this thing called employee engagement all those years ago. I started life as a health psychologist and kind of fell into the corporate world, loved it. Um, and I was looking after engagement in the mid-2000s and I thought this is the, like the least engaging job and it should be the best because it's all about helping people to thrive at work and be their best selves. And it's not, it's just sitting in a darkened room, um, you know, looking at deficit approach or stuff that's not working and it's depressing and and it's not working. It's just not working. So as a psychologist, like I looked to the world of psychology and that's where I came across positive psychology. And I was like, oh, this is it. Let's just have a different conversation. Let's ask people what, what what's happening for you when you're at your best how can we get more of that and I started experimenting with using tools like appreciative inquiry and had the most amazing not me personally but the team had this amazing success I'm like wow this this is really interesting and then I went to my next in-house role I thought I'll try that again it seemed to work at the last place and had amazing success and then because of my you know, background, as a, I started life as an academic, quite happy to go and spread the word. Like, I need to tell people about this. We've been getting it all wrong. And I just used to go out in, in the UK and, and, and try and talk to as many people as possible about, we're getting this wrong. And uh, if you just have subtle shifts, will make a huge difference. And um, have people saying, hey, can you come help us? And that's, that's how People Lab was born. I didn't have this kind of calling to start my own business. But yeah, I mean, for, for us, I mean, Katie probably agree with this. It's just the subtle shift of people have this huge aha moment when you just shift to that strength-based approach and say, we're not going to ignore the stuff that's not working, but let's have a different conversation. And also the other big thing, I know you talk a lot about empathy, um, you know, that again, getting rid of the ego and getting comfortable with the fact that you don't know what good looks like for your people. You've got to go and ask them and engage them in that conversation. And when you do that, and that's where the magic really happens. I'm sure Katie's got some stuff she can add to that. But yeah, I, no, I just absolutely agree with, with both points, really. Firstly, it's definitely about not making assumptions about what actually does engage people and excites people and, and what is helps them to be at their best, because I think it's very easy to make assumptions. But so often we can get it we can get it wrong. Um, and so many organisations model their entire strategy upon their their kind of survey and what they think people want and and what their engagement scores they they think are telling them but could be focusing on totally the wrong thing so yeah I think first of all go out and actually speak to people get rid of those assumptions and find out what what does engage them and excites them and and I think also once you get past that point quite a lot of this stuff is it's pretty simple stuff. You know, a lot of it, there's, there's no real surprises. It's when you start explaining, well, if you just do this differently, this is what people want. People are like, oh yeah, why have I never thought of it like that before? And I think, again, it comes back to the fact we spend so long making these assumptions and making these decisions for people and thinking we know what's right for them, that we miss some of the basic stuff. Anyway, I I think that that, that does. Yeah, (laughs) about this for hours. (laughs) No, I I love that you're building on David's appreciative inquiry because I think it's such it's as big as it is. It's still such a. I mean, I I mean, I I hesitate because I wanted I wanted to ask you to kind of break it down of like which part of appreciative inquiry worth the best, but um, because too many people don't even know what that is. Yeah, 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 absolutely, and and, you know, most. I mean, underneath everything we do there is some 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 science i mean self-determination theory comes to play a lot but we don't often talk to our people we work with about that sort of stuff because they're not again it's that 
you know, in your book, you talk about, you know, the, where you put your battles and the language you use. It's kind of finding out how to be more courageous. And I think it's interesting. It, it, part of the reason it really resonated with me is because we're asking companies to be courageous in their approach to their people um, and empower them and give them autonomy. That's really scary. You know, the system is set up, as you said, you know, within organisations to it's quite an oppressive system for a lot of people that work there, but people don't question it. So something I was really interested in the book was you talk about system justification, which was just, it was just such an eye opener for me because I've always wondered why do people, you know, vote for this or, or comply with this or contribute to this when it's not doing them any good. I just never got it. And suddenly I'm like, oh, okay, that's why. So I really appreciated that. That process. Yeah. Talk to us about that. The system justification. Yeah. Fascinating. I, I mean, this gets the you know the notion of you know, and it, and it fits with your prior question before I interrupted of um, yeah. what, it, one of the big cognitive biases, the status quo bias. I mean, I, I just cut the cord on my cable, and I cannot tell you how many years I've been thinking about why am I paying two hundred fifty dollars a month when the only thing I watch is the news for half an hour with Lester Holt at seven thirty p.m. Hmm. And the reason is very simple: um, the switching costs. The switching costs are so big in terms of um, just removing the routers and just, you know, and, call, and calling the company and then I have to return it physically. I can't mail it. And it just sounds like adulting is so horrible. And just for all the teenagers that are listening to this and the, the people in college, like stay in college for like 23 years because there's, you don't want to talk about grout and you don't want to talk about refinancing your house. And you don't want to push the buggy with two kids in there um, when they're crying, when they're happy. You're just pushing it because you have silence that happens there. So just <laughs> stick around. What's the norm that we're supposed to get out in four years? That's a status quo bias. I mean, why would anyone say you have to leave college after four years? The better question to ask, this fits with your question about system justification, mm. is have you acquired the knowledge and the social network that you wanted to during your years in uni? And if the answer is no, then go back to, I'm not yet ready to graduate yet. Now, I realize like, if money is an issue, then that's, then that's all of a sudden, that's now, it's like a board game. Is money an issue while you have to leave? Then graduate and go make money and then make sure you can be a lifelong educator um, and keep on taking courses and keep on reading books. But if money is not an object, which is for some people, wasn't for me, might have not been for the two of you or a lot of the listeners here, um, then what's, there's nothing magical about four years that happens there. So, the, you know, one of the, the system justification is there are reasons that we hold on to the, the orthodoxy. And that's because we want to, there are groups that we identify with and there are groups that we want to be a part of. And striving to be a good group member often means is that I'm going to comply with the beliefs and attitudes that you have in generally, at least the public facade of it that happens there. Mm -hmm. And so this is where... Some of the interesting research by John Jost at NYU and Banaji at Harvard is showing that even people that are economically disadvantaged, they often vote for candidates that actually have policies that are will sustain their economic disadvantage and will not close the gap between what they want to be economically and where they actually are. Now, why do they do that? It's because one, it ends up being that we are designed by two and a half million years of evolution that we are more likely to survive by being attached to a group as opposed to being isolated. Mm -hmm. And even though we might not see the leaders of our group, so let's just think about political parties, but not name, but not name them. Mm -hmm. We don't see them. We don't hang out with them. 
But the idea of having my bumper sticker on my car, the idea of having websites that I go to, that it is curated to be for people that are in my group. You start to identify more strongly, and the more strongly that more strongly you identify with the group, the less permeable the boundaries are for for reaching outside of the group to acquire new wisdom, new information, new friends, and new perspectives that can give you another way of looking at your life. And it's a big. It, this goes back to Katie, what you mentioned before. It's a big act of empathy and compassion that's missing in society, where we can say. I kind of get why you're voting against yourself is that the fear of losing the group, who would you be floating alone in space where nobody could hear you scream and there's no other people that you're going to hold hands with and actually will answer your texts, your emails is so scary. That fear that almost like the anticipation of possible loneliness and ostracism is worth more to you in terms of the cost than the benefit of voting for a policy that might work for you. And it really speaks to self-determination theory. The need to belong is stronger Mm. as a human universal than Mm. the need to have a little bit more money and reduce my stress, which is not a basic psychological need because everyone, everyone that's having that are voting against themselves, the vast majority of them, I shouldn't speak for humanity here. The vast (laughs) majority of them is there's a very low level of poverty in the UK Mm. and in Spain, um, in Portugal, in the United States, in Canada, there's a lot of people that are poor. But the level of poverty that you can't you can't support your family mm-hmm. is extremely low. It's an amazing an amazing accomplishment over the past hundred years. And if you open up one of those one thousand page tomes by Steven Pinker, he provides all the data on this, which I'm not going to go through right now. But knowing that that they don't have to worry about poverty and they could function. Now you start moving to that psychological need for autonomy and mm. belonging, mm. for novelty. And this, do I have a sense of mastery over my world? How do you gain a sense of mastery over your world? You have good allies and you get to leverage their strengths, their mm. social networks, their philosophies, their financial resources, their political connections. And all of that is at risk if mm. you challenge your political group so you can understand yeah. uh, you know, why we stick to the status quo. Yeah, it was really fascinating. I had a huge, huge light bulb moment when I read that piece of the book. And the the other piece I wanted to talk to you about is is chapter two really resonated with me, which is this strange things people do to be liked. And as a a kind of lifelong people pleaser until I hit menopause recently, and that's completely changed me. And now I'm like so much more comfortable with not being liked. It's like, thank you at last. But um, yeah, that was really interesting and kind of building on what you just what you're just saying there, Todd. But um. So something I read recently was about kind of, you know, how you define fear of failure versus fear of success. And, and um, I don't know if there's any science behind this, but the kind of quick article I read was saying, you know, fear of failure is kind of like beating yourself up, whereas fear of success is more about worrying about how others will see you. And that really resonated with me and saying that women tend to have more of a fear of success than men, because women tend to, to, to be certainly in, in the Western society to be raised sort of, you know, be modest, don't be too loud, don't get too big, big for your boots. And certainly that's how, you know, my parents are amazing, but they definitely brought me up to, you know, not shout about my accomplishments and to play my accomplishments down. And I absolutely struggle with a lifelong kind of, um, you know, fear of success. But I wondered if you if you found in your research any kind of gender differences, is it easier for men to be courageous 
and to be rebels and for women have you, have you come across anything that that indicates that so um great thought uh and i am curious of um I've heard this from Meryl Streep. She has a great, great quote about how she could give a flying crap about what people think anymore. And mm -hmm. this has come from Meryl Streep. I mean, this is one of the greatest actresses in our era. Mm -hmm. and, and then you're like, wait, wait, you were worried about what people thought in your 30s and 40s and now, and now you don't care anymore? Like, what does that say for the rest of us? Mm -hmm. um, wait, so just to, just to backtrack, because I am raising three daughters, um, what is it about the menopausal stage that gave you like the burst of courage and the the drop in worrying about popularity yeah I, I don't know I just suddenly woke up and thought why why do I have people in, in my life that aren't good for me or why do I you know uh, why do I want my clients to love me when they're being absolute a-holes and suddenly not that they all are very few are but you know suddenly I was like I don't care anymore it's that whole warrior woman when you kind of get into your I'm 51 now and uh, I was like oh, I wish I'd had a bit of this you know 30 years ago um it, maybe it's just like the hormones I don't I don't know I don't know but suddenly I just felt like I kind of woken up and was able to be a lot more courageous which for me is quite a big thing because I definitely um yeah the, the strange things we do to be liked I mean I I used to if I met someone who didn't like me you know in the by past it almost was like a challenge I'm going to make you like me I'm going to win you over it's like why why did I, just let it go Emma you don't have to be liked by everyone so that really kind of yeah, it was like a kind of a therapy session, that chapter, you know, and it kind of felt like in some ways I understood myself a little bit more in terms of why I was like that, but also really pleased that I'm I'm definitely more courageous now than I have been. And I don't know, I mean, I'm obviously just speaking from my own experience. And I, I also have, a, I have a daughter and two sons and my daughter is not anywhere near, she doesn't, she's pretty, we call her, she's quite nails, she's Edie, she's quite nails, she doesn't care. She's much more courageous than I was at her age. I'm like, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's probably luck rather than parenting, but I don't know. I just, I just wondered if there are any kind of gender differences coming through the research that you've looked at. Yeah, I, I just want I just want to say um, I, I feel the freedom that you have mentally of like it's like yeah. it just dissipated, just like and, and and part of the reason that I wrote this book was I wanted to give the guidebook for all of the younger Emmas and Katies and Todds who spent all their years of, ah, oh, man, if only I was sitting at that table in middle school in you know, in the lunchroom of like, ah, why was I invited to the party of, you know, Doug Oaken and Russ Greenfield, the amazing people from my high school that everybody thought was so physically attractive and, and, mm -hmm. you know, socially astute and so funny and playful, but like, Arr! you know, so, and then you actually cared. And so there's this, this is a book about, Hey, um, here's a lot of science. Here's a lot of stories. And, you know, you, you know, you gals are telling your stories right now. I think it's important is if we can culturally train people to be critical thinkers and courageous and really kind of alter the norms such that it is gendered. So there's, there's a lot of research here. Um, you know, the big gender differences tend to be in the land of agreeableness, which mm -hmm. is the need to be polite. And, um, and there's the high level of compassion. And that level of compassion has a dark side, which is that you do care about you don't want to be the nail that stands up this you know a japanese proverb because that's going to be um punched down with the hammer and and you and you hold that belief of the make sure that the group feels good about themselves not and i will subvert myself with the group and i think you know one of the great bodies of work is by marilyn brewer who and who recently retired and she talks about we have two psychological needs within a group 
And one of them is the sense of belonging, which you've already hit on. And the other one is the sense that we are uniqueness, that mm-hmm. that we are not we are not um, interchangeable with any other person, and that we're not an expendable character. We're a linchpin that happens there. We have that need now. Whether we are that linchpin is another story. Yeah. But this is yeah. about perception, and part of the thing that we have to do have to is too strong of a word. Part of the thing that would be beneficial that we can do as parents, as leaders, as friends, and as neighbors is really allow space for people to have this striving to showcase their uniqueness. And it's not just necessarily dissenting or disagreeing. It's that they have different preferences. They like different ice cream than you. They like different movies than you. They play different they, they play different things on Spotify than you, and they dress differently than you, and they open conversations differently than you. And when they're when they're not sure what to say in a conversation, their verbal graffiti, in terms of the ums and the uhs and the, let me think about this. They have different phrases that they use, and they have different cultural norms about how close they like to stand towards people when they're talking to strangers, or how they greet or say goodbyes. They might do air kisses on their cheeks as if they're from, you know, from Spain or from France, as opposed to the UK or the United States, where we actually, you know, fist bump or handshake, or there's that horrible male norm where people pat you on the back as if they're burping you because they can't, they're so afraid of intimacy. It's just something. That is the number one, by the way, social norm that I'm trying to change in society is that men not pat each other on the back and just let that arm yeah. go around and stay there and let that nice that nice oxytocin reaction to occur. So I, I stop people. I tell them, you, you must hug me like you love me. That's what I want from you. doesn't matter what your, your X, Y, or XX. You could do it. You could pull this off. Um, the, the, science is, is, the science is clear that there's not really a deficit in courage for women compared to men. It expresses itself differently. So one thing we know, for example, is that men are more likely than women to ask their manager or boss at two o'clock on a random Tuesday for a pay raise. Yeah. That adds up. Yeah. And you know, you adds up over time and over a company where you have these, it's not the only factor. There's still, you know, misogynistic elements that are still built in society, but yeah. that's increasing the gap. And now, how do you get women to be more motivated to run into that office and say, listen, I'm doing better work than all the people around me. And, you know, just because, you know, my genitalia happens to be differently should not be a factor in terms of my pay. Um, that's not how you would do it in the office. Now, so what's, what is a practical strategy that we know from science works? If women are to think of you should ask for a raise, not for you, but because you are raising the standards for your sex. Mm. You have the power to be the outlier that actually increases and improves society one person at a time asking for the money. Pro-social, a pro-social motive, not an egocentric motive. That thought alone is more, is more liable to increase the probability that women are going to ask for a pay raise compared to what they did before. And the other one is to ask the question, going back before for self-distancing, which is what advice would you give your best friend if they thought they were being underpaid compared to the people like you? And those two strategies, when given in experiments, women are more likely to ask for money and they get and they get and they get their money because when you're one on one, face to face in an office, it's really hard to argue with objective logic when you provide a spreadsheet, here's the numbers. Yeah. You explain to me why I'm making $20,000 less than Billy. Yeah. 
yeah there's the numbers yeah absolutely yeah it's fascinating stuff and like i say the social distancing strategy is just so simple the, the minute you say that i can see katie smiling as well you know sort of you think yeah of course i would tell my best friend to go for it why would i not do that so it's that kind of almost that self-care piece and you, you mentioned before todd about you know uh you raising three daughters and uh, a lot of our listeners are, are parents um and I love in the book that you've got a chapter about, you know, the next generation of, of, of rebels and, and how we raise them. And I'm really fascinated by that. Um, and I know there's something that you talk about a lot, but I just, you know, there's this whole kind of cancel culture that's going on and the fact that, you know, rejection is, is, is such a, a big thing when you're a teenager and now you can be rejected so publicly for getting it slightly wrong. And I just thank the Lord that when I was a teenager getting it wrong, the social media wasn't around. So I can say, we all say that. Everyone, everyone who grew up in the eighties and says the exact same thing. Like I would have never, Yeah, it, it's, you know what? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but Emma, I mean, you hit something that is so fundamental. Mm. Everyone right now that is in our cohort, forties, fifties, late thirties and older, we have to be asking ourselves because we keep saying this. I'm so glad that there weren't smartphones and social media and I got to make mistakes and not be publicly shamed. What are we doing yeah. to make the lives less stressful for the young people? Yeah. And, 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 and this is where you get the defender archetype of principled mm-hmm. rebels. What are you doing to protect the young people that yeah. are being publicly shamed for everything? Even if you disagree with what they said or did, they're yeah. trying to learn by shaping. They're going to make mistakes. They're yeah. going to say magical, offensive words because mm-hmm. they want to see what the reaction is. Do we want them not to get into college or have their college admission rescinded as a result of them saying that? Do we want people doing a file drawer effect where people go through their history once they say something wrong and say, this is not the only time when you were seven, when you were 11, when you were 14, you said something similar. You were, you were singing rap lyrics of Run DMC and there were some bad words in there when you were 11 and it is a video and it is online, it is public and I'm attaching it as an addendum to what you just said last week. Yeah. Just think about, like, we have to start expanding the time horizon and ask ourselves, what are we, what are we creating? What monstrosities are we creating where people are basically being told the way to prevent yourself from being shunned and the way to prevent yourself from not not having a rewarding thing taken away from you is mm-hmm. you must stay silent and yeah. only keep your ideas in dimly lit rooms with a few close friends in the dark. And then you can say what you really think. Because here's the, the societal consequence. Nobody knows what is the social norm of what you're supposed to say or do. And everybody has a mis nomer of what people think because you only know if you were invited into the small room small sessions with no recording equipment allowed it's called preference falsification and what that means is that people are not publicly expressing what they truly believe and only in their own minds or with their close friends are they truly expressing it so we have no freaking clue where society is right now and that's a bad thing because I want to know where people's biases are. I want to know what people's prejudices are. I want to know where people are wrong so we can have constructive dialogue and conversations. And we must create, you know, and I know Emma and Katie, you're doing this in organizations. We have to create a culture where you have to allow people to make, you can't just say it. You can't just have a poster on the wall. You can't just have a statement that's in your principles on your website. 
What do you actually do the next time someone in a group meeting says something that's the wrong term? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give a provocative, controversial word right now. Yeah. I'm not going to use the big one. Just because I want, let's say that, you know, I talk fast. I'm a New Yorker. I like these extemporaneous conversations. None of us talked about what we're going to talk ahead of time. In the course of doing hours and hours of this, I'm going to say something that's wrong. And if you come up to me and ask me that, uh, why'd you do that? I'm going to say, I will say, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to say it that way. Um, My intention was this. If you don't give someone that opportunity, what you just did is you stopped everyone in the future from saying anything that they that they believe does not have 80% probability or greater of winning social approval. That means the end of creativity, the end of innovation, the end of half-constructed ideas and only finished products, and your organization has now lost the majority of its potential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that, that's it's such a critical... Uh, message to get across right I mean I remember um, you know we had this little thing over here you might have heard of it called Brexit and um, and I and like you Todd I mean you know you talked about you know deliberately seeking out people who have different opinions to yourself and I, and I think I'm, I'm pretty good at that because I have a background in psychology I'm very curious and I'm not one of those people who will say hey if you vote differently to me uh, you know I want to be your Facebook friend well, no, t- tell me why you know and I'm, I'm interested I want to find out I want to have a conversation but even I was shocked when Brexit went through because I was like, I don't know anyone that's voting for Brexit. And I think that was a really good manifestation in the UK. Everyone was so shocked because we didn't know that we, that the Remainers, didn't know there were this massive group of people who felt differently to us. And that, that dialogue never happened, that, that honest conversation. So the mess room right now where everyone's kind of lost, really, it's, it's been a lose-lose for everybody's as a result of these sorts of conversations, I think not happening and it not being out in the public domain to be able to have a proper dialogue about it. So. No, I'm glad you brought the, Oh, sorry. No, Katie, you go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to add to that. Really. I think, do you think a lot of that as well, just how there seems to be a fear of people changing their mind as well, even if they've got the facts presented to them, and, and, you know, we're not talking specifically about Brexit. So I certainly don't, I don't, I don't want to open that box. But when people do make a decision that, that does have this massive impact and, and that it really divides people, people seem to be really frightened of holding their hands up and say, actually, I didn't know this at the time, but I've got the facts in front of me now. And I think I was wrong. I think I've changed my mind on how I feel. You don't get that. People don't like to admit okay, maybe I wasn't informed or I was misinformed or anything like that. People don't like to admit, I might have got this one wrong. Or I've changed my mind, which is allowed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I actually I actually find it really endearing, even, even if they've changed their mind to the other side of what I agree with. I think it's, it's, I'm so much, I have so much more respect for people that say, okay, I've changed my mind than that real stubborn, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to admit that I've, I've got this one wrong. And I see you see it so much in in politics as well. You see it so much in politics. Yeah, and and I think there's a, there's a corollary to that, which is we force people to change their mind publicly. So there was an interesting moment in psychology. It was about two years ago, where there was a lot of researchers alive right now and and practitioners who actually advocated for. Um, sexual orientation reversal therapies. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot. The people that basically said, we can use psychotherapy and we can change you from being gay to being straight. Mm-hmm. And 
there is a big push to, and you can even actually, you can even probably find it on Twitter right now because there's some people that did not respond to the call and said, we want you to disown the things that you said in the past. So my brain bifurcates on this and has two thoughts. So one is horrible past. I mean, the idea that, you know, you had this belief, but can we go back into the 1960s and 70s and see what people's views were at that time and then kind of think about were they aiming for to harm human beings or were they aiming to help human beings and kind of where does it fall in that continuum as opposed to using the present day more mores to redefine what those people were like in the 60s and 70s um and i think it's very challenging to use historical norms at the time and discard them as we view people from the past through the lens of the present mm. because everybody sucks everybody all the founding fathers all the found the i don't they're not they're completely normal all the women that were in, in the same time period as the founding fathers of the united states they all sucked mm. I, I was just reading yesterday how abraham lincoln this is exactly what it said. So this is um, the 1800s. Was it 1800s? Yeah, 1800s, sorry. Brain's a little bit fried. Um, Abraham Lincoln liked darky humor. This is a very common phrase about Abraham Lincoln. So here is the guy that emanci emancipated slaves, put this legislation into action, made sure that this, this is going to be the beginning of the end in terms of black people being treated as, as if they're cartel for white people and doing their service. He used the N-word. He liked what was called darky humor back then. Um, that, that was the time period. And as much as we want to judge Abraham Lincoln, say, you know what? You weren't as good as people thought you were. You actually are problematic. We should actually remove your name. We don't really have, we don't have audio tapes and we don't have videotapes of what conversations were like during that time period um, from anybody. It's from any, from any race, from any demographic, from low, in, low income, middle income, high income that happens here. And I'm going to argue based on historical knowledge, he did the best he could and he was the best ally you could have asked for at that time. And he also knew the only way that I was going to win votes from the racist characters, the really racist characters. And when I say racist, I'm talking about people that believe that you are not worthy of even having a child because you are such a aberration as a human being. And you are not worthy of having a job and you're not worthy of actually coming out of poverty. This, this was what racism was like. Um, and some people still have these views today. Like you are not worthy of tolerance, dignity, but even you're not even worthy of actually being in the same, same physical space as me. Lincoln was as close as it got to the most progressive human being possible, but he had, this was the social mores of the time. Mm -hmm. And we have to have a better knowledge of history to make sure that we don't repeat them same mistakes. And a really scary thing is we're taking some really great, well-meaning people who are going to actually push society to evolve in healthy, positive directions. And we are crushing them because they're making unintentional mistakes because they're putting a lot of stuff out there that happens there. And I, and we're not giving charity and we're not giving forgiveness and we're not giving what Desmond Tutu was really for before he passed away this year of reconciliation and offering a path back into society. And 
it's a very scary social norm. And I'm out here trying to really hard to kind of push it for um, really rethinking some of these ideas. Yeah, 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 really agree with you and very powerful stuff. And just on a, a much more superficial level, you know, there's loads of musicians and bands that you're into that, you know, you're like, well, can I still like them? You know, David Bowie. I mean, you know, he's he's God, isn't he, in, in the music industry? But suddenly, some dodgy stuff. And oh, we really like to like David Bowie. And uh, there was this amazing music uh, DJ in the UK called John Peel. If you're into any sort of alternative music, and I know you're big into your music, um, Todd. Um, you know, and there's some stuff that you know. I think he had a a really young wife or something. It's oh, we can't like John Peel. It's like, okay, we're not allowed to like all these people anymore. They've done. You know, John Peel did more for music than you know. Anyway, I I, I digress, but. Fugazi, I love the fact you get Fugazi into the book. That's just amazing. So you're- that was that was a that was a dream. I mean, this is Fugazi. <laughs> Fugazi helped me help me survive my my adolescenthood. So um, this is my homage to them. But I, but I want to hit back on David Bowie because David Bowie is very interesting. David Bowie was an amazing gender rebel. So yeah. yes, he he engaged in some uh, to use your term dodgy behavior. Which was and the music industry was a dodgy place in the 1970s. But this, if if you want to think of the the public acceptance of the LGBTQI plus community today, there is a debt owed to David Bowie. David Bowie wearing dresses. David Bowie, um, you know, dressing in um, you know really gender. I mean, he's just a gender fluid being. Just kind of uh, in terms of. What is a male and what is a female and why can't I kind of um, play in the liminal space between the two in whatever direction I want to? There is a debt owed to this gender rebel that happened there. And let's not ignore that just because he was just created amazing music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Listen, I I know we've we've run well over. So and you are a really busy man. So um, I'm going to ask you one last question then. So if there's one thing we can go out and do like today or this week to push this push this forwards and be more correct courageous what's the one thing we could do i would say is look at your day every day as a series of choice points and you have this do i approach or do i avoid it happens there and they come from what people say they come from uh, moments uh, where you feel uncomfortable in your skin where you're unsure whether you should speak something and what you do at any given moment, don't put pressure on yourself that you have to make the approach moves and say and speak and act. But your pattern over time matters. And I'm going to really kind of push people to try for that 30-second burst of courage where you just blurt it out even if your hands are shaking and your voice is shaky and you're, you're not comfortable in your skin and experiment with how it happens. And I think what you'll find is people really generally tend to embrace you being human and you being vulnerable and you being anxious and putting yourself out there because the you only get to say that you were courageous if you experience fear so try to do that 30 second burst and just willingness to take action despite the presence of fear Oh, that's that's brilliant advice. I'm going to absolutely uh, do this. I'm going to do it. The next opportunity I get and let you know how it goes. Todd, thank you so much. I could have talked for hours longer, but, you know, you're really busy. So going to let you go. Um, and yeah, just just thank you for your time. And everybody just get hold of the book because it is it's brilliant and it's life changing stuff. So thank you so much, Todd. Um, Katie, 
Go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I love what the two of you are doing. I love that there are people that are translating the science into practice and going into organizations. Um, and I love that you are, um, you're out there kind of comfortably expressing that, um, you know, don't wait to be 40 or 50 to, um, to, to worry less what other people think who you don't actually care about their opinions because they never really gave you a good opinion. So thank you for being you. I, I definitely need to get some lessons on that. I'm, I'm still very much in the people-pleasing phase, so I, I, I'm going to be reading up, um, which brings me nicely. Just just remind us again, your book, it's out um, next week, is it? Is it the 18th? Yeah, February 15th, um, but you can you can order it now. And actually, if there's a link on toddcash.com where I created a, a free workbook and um, free videos and free a free toolbox for anyone that orders it before the book comes out. That's amazing. We'll we'll share that with our um our viewers as well. So um yes, those of you who are watching this now um through one of our mailing lists, then the link will be below. And if you're not watching it through the mailing list, then make sure you subscribe so that you can get all this extra fantastic content that we get whenever we have a fantastic guest on the show. Um I think that's pretty much it, but I just want to absolutely echo what Emma said. It's been such a joy having you on. It's been such an interesting conversation and a brilliant start to the research show for 2022 as well. So thank you so much for giving up your time today. My pleasure. Love being around you.